You're listening to The Way Home with Daniel Darling, a proud member of the Venom Audio Network. Well, hello and welcome to The Way Home Podcast. This is your host, Dan Darling. I'm so glad that you are with me again today. Uh, We've got a great guest in store for you. Before we uh, talk about our guest, I want to let you know about a few things. Um, If you are not subscribed to this podcast, go to uh, iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or Spotify, however you get your podcast, and please do subscribe uh, so that you can get the latest one uh, every time it downloads. Secondly, I want to let you know about a couple of things. Uh, My book, The Characters of Creation, is available uh, for Moody Publishers. This is the third in the characters uh, series and uh, really goes through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Some of the characters like Adam and Eve and uh, Cain and Abel, Moses, even the serpent, uh, the mysterious character, the Nephilim, all of those. Uh, You can find out more if you go to your favorite website to order books or independent bookstore, or you can go to danieldarling.com and see the links there. Also, I have a Bible study out with Lifeway on spiritual gifts, and uh, this is great for small group study. It's great for uh, individual study. Yeah, it really just kind of goes to the basics of what is what are spiritual gifts? How do we know what our spiritual gifts are as Christians? And how do we recognize the gifts of others? And how does that work within the context of a body of believers within community? A lot of times we talk about giftedness. We talk about uh, the way that God has called us and our calling. Very important for us to know where and how God is calling us, but also to know in the context of our local body of believers. And so you can get that as well. Go to my website, danieldarling.com, go to lifeway.com or anywhere you buy books and get that. Okay. I want to get to my guest. I am delighted to have my good friend, Matthew Sorens back on the podcast. Matt is a longtime friend. Uh, He has worked at World Relief for a very long time, both advocating uh, for immigrants, but also helping educating the church on the complicated issue of immigration. I know this is an issue that often divides people. Uh, There are good people on many sides of asking, how do we solve the immigration crisis? Both the flow of um, illegal uh, immigrants coming over the border and human trafficking issues and uh, drug trafficking and illegal guns and all that stuff that really... Is, is, is a complicated issue, but also how do we make space and make legal pathways for folks who do want to come here, who flee terror, many of them are brothers and sisters in Christ, who want to make a better life for themselves. And so we talk about some of the myths about immigration, some of the problems. Uh, we also talk about the refugee situation, uh, refugees from Ukraine, refugees from Afghanistan, from Syria, other troubled places. Uh, Matt Sorens is really knowledgeable. He's a brother in Christ. He knows the Bible. He knows immigration. And uh, I know you're going to learn a lot from him. He has a new book out called Inalienable, How Marginalized Kingdom Voices Can Help Save the American Church. We'll have links to that in our show notes. But I don't want you to miss another second of this conversation with my good friend, Matthew Sorens. Thanks for joining me today, man. Yeah, it's great to be back, Dan. So you and I have been talking about immigration stuff for a long time, probably at least a decade, back when I was a pastor, and you really helped me think through the complexities of the issue, and just thankful for your 
your witness on this. So, you know, when we first started talking about immigration, you know, it was, a, it was always a fraud issue. Uh, I remember, I think one of our articles, we said, hey, if you want to like disrupt a harmonious dinner party, just throw the topic of immigration out there. It's not like it's gotten less polarizing. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, but it really is, a, is an important issue for Christians to think through, um, to think through biblically. One of the things that's been sobering to me is seeing a lot of the data. I think it's changed a little bit positively and maybe, but that a lot of us Christians are informed less by scripture and more by kind of um, the messages we're hearing from our favorite pundits or politicos, you know, it's really important for us to think biblically about this, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's definitely our hard uh, world relief. I mean, that, that specific stat I think you're referencing was a 2015 LifeWay research poll that we helped commission and we are actually working with LifeWay to update that. So I do hope that we see that this has shifted um, and when we get the results in the coming months. Yeah. But uh, at the time in 2015, and again, this is, you know, people seem they can answer the question any way they like. So this is self-admission. Only 12% yeah. of self-described evangelical Christians said that the most important factor influencing their views on the arrival of immigrants to their community was the Bible. The, the that was if you added in those who said the local church and those who said the views of national Christian leaders combined, that was still less than the media, which is an actually mm-hmm. an awfully discouraging finding. I do hope that's changing, but um, but of course the media has a lot to say on this, and not all you know, not all inaccurate, but um, some of it mm-hmm. can be kind of um, you know individual stories out of context, and uh, very rarely is it giving you a distinctly biblical perspective on how to think not only about the issue of immigration, but about the people who are immigrants, which I think for Christians is really important that we remember that each of these is an individual human being made in God's image. That's really the starting point, right? I mean, when I, when I was thinking about my book, the digging revolution, you know, let's back up from the policy debates and from the um, complexity of the issue and just how should Christians think about individual immigrants, regardless of how you think about legality and the border and what should be done. You, You know, these, immigrants are human beings made in the image of God, regardless of their immigration status. So that really, to me, seems to be the starting point, right? As, as we think about this. Yeah. And and I think to then go one level further, a great many of them are brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, not all. And, and the, you know, the flip side of that is there's people who come in, who might encounter Jesus and the story of the gospel, the hope of the gospel for the first time, because they, for one reason or another, came to the United States. But it's easy to lose sight of the reality that a large number of immigrants, especially because they tend to come from, uh, especially those who are coming from Latin America, um, mm-hmm. which is a, you know an area where the gospel has been for a long time. And there's really robust churches, especially in places like Central mm-hmm. America. Um, a lot of them are bringing a vibrant Christian faith with them as well. And actually, you know, revitalizing some sectors of, of American Christianity as they come. That, that's again, not to say that those legal questions don't matter. Uh, they do matter. They're important. And, um, you know, God has established government. And we need to respect that. But uh, it's more it's, it, it starts with individual human beings who are made in God's image, who are clearly in every case, neighbors whom we're called to love. Um, and in many cases, who are brothers and sisters in Christ. So let, let's, you know, for, for those who are not steeped in this issue, let, let's kind of walk through a little bit of to, to help people understand. The issue is complex, right? I mean, I, th- I think on the one hand, you have the issue of immigration and the border. On the other hand, you have refugees and you have kind of, so I want to talk about refugees in a little bit, but first let's talk about immigration. You have the complexity of it, right? That a nation, you know, nations have to have borders. They have to decide who comes in and out. They're tasked with protecting people. You can't have a border where people could just 
come in whenever they want. Um, I don't think anybody's, you know, there's, there's some folks on the far left that, that advocate that, but I think for the most part, very few people are advocating that you, you have to have a border. So it's not wrong to say, Hey, we gotta, we gotta make sure that, you know, you have things like human trafficking. That's a real yeah. issue. You have things like the, the flow of drugs, the flow of illegal guns, all those kinds of things that the government has to support, stop. Sure. On the other hand, you, you have immigrants, like the people who want to come here and make a better life. And it's really difficult. I think what people don't understand is how difficult it is to get into the country. Mm-hmm. And there's not really a ton of legal pathways for people to come in, come in legally. Yeah. Uh, and so talk about the brokenness of the system. Talk about kind of balancing those two, the, the rule of law and the border and balancing compassion and the need to be a, you know, as our Statue of Liberty says, we're the huddled masses yearning to breathe free, you know, yeah. uh, we, we welcome those, those folks. So, so talk about that balance as a Christian, what that looks like. Yeah. You know, I think when I started working as a, an immigration legal counselor, and this was 15, 16 years ago now, I think my attitude towards immigrants was generally what a lot of Americans is, which is I'm, I'm not against immigration. They just need to, you know, go wait their turn in line and come the legal way. Mm-hmm. And I still, um, I certainly think that that's a good sentiment. What I learned pretty quickly, though, is that the lines that exist in the U.S. immigration legal system today were not what I understood them to be. I think I had an idea of the U.S. immigration system that was sort of stuck in that Ellis Island era, where if you if if you came in and you were a good person and you followed the right process, you could come to the United States. And I'm not necessarily arguing we should go back to Ellis Island, but the reality is we haven't had that system for you know more than 100 years at this point. The, the ways that you come lawfully to the United States, and this has been true roughly since, I mean, the last updates were in 1990, so several decades now, is you have a family sponsor who's a U.S. citizen or is a or has a green card, close relative, not your cousin, not your uncle or aunt, your grandparent, but a close relative who sponsors you. And sometimes that's fast. Sometimes, literally, they're still processing cases from the 1990s uh, or the very early 2000s, about 20 to 25 years in some cases. But if you don't have the relative, that's not an option. So your next line is an employer sponsor. Um, there's 140,000 of those employer-sponsored immigrant visas available each year under our laws. And again, those are laws that haven't been meaningfully updated in decades. Our economy has changed a lot since 1990. Um, and the vast majority of those visas are specifically designated for those who are highly skilled. And I, I see a lot of value in having more visas for those who are highly skilled. But it turns out even that term highly skilled is a little bit subjective because my, my family and I picked blueberries in Michigan last weekend. We thought it was fun for about half an hour, but that's not a skill that I have to pick blueberries all day long. And it's a skill that a lot of immigrants do in agriculture and other sectors of our economy. Um, they may qualify for a temporary work visa, but there's really no immigrant visa options for them. So the third option is a diversity visa lottery, literally an online lottery that you know your odds of winning most years is somewhere around one in 400. So not particularly mm-hmm. good. And you can't enter if you're from Mexico or El Salvador or India or China or any of the countries that send the most immigrants to the U.S. And the last option is refugee status, which we'll get to a little bit more. But the refugees are specifically people who have fled a credible fear of persecution for specific reasons under U.S. law. Um, a very small percentage of them in recent years, less than one-tenth of one percent of the world's refugees get selected and brought to the United States. And then the second part of that refugee status is what's called asylum. And this brings us to the border. Um, and where the border is very complicated because you hear about people coming illegally to the border and they're simultaneously trying to do something legal and maybe doing something illegal in that the U.S. law says that you can seek asylum if you get to the United States. You can't apply for asylum back in your country of origin. That's the refugee program where your odds are very, very slim. But if you can get to the United States, you can request asylum if you can demonstrate a credible fear of persecution 
on account of your race, religion, political opinion, national origin, or social group. U.S. law says that. That's sort of the, the draw for a lot of people who are fleeing something bad. And yet, and it says you can apply for that even if you cross the border unlawfully. And so because we've actually closed down asylum at ports of entry, which used to be a possibility, so no need to break any law at all. Now, the only way to request asylum, if you don't have a visa to the United States, which are difficult to get, is to basically look for a border patrol agent. And that's created a lot of the crisis that we see right now. Um, there are some bad people trying to come in. I don't think it's the, in any way the majority. I think it's a small share. But the large numbers are people who are very desperate fleeing bad circumstances, some of whom that bad circumstance is a persecution that would qualify for them asylum. Some of them, it's extreme hunger. And that's not going to, you know, that's not persecution under the law. I'm sympathetic to that hardship. And I think we should have more legal immigration, especially when we have more labor needs in the United States than we can fill. But I also would say, having spent a lot of time at the border, most immigrants who come and say, I want to seek asylum, do not have a very thorough understanding of U.S. immigration law. And that's not a knock on them because most American citizens don't have a very thorough understanding of U.S. immigration law either. But they have heard, you know, that Statue of Liberty sort of dynamic that you mentioned. Give me your tired, your poor, your teeming masses yearning to be breathe free. They know people who've made it to the U.S. in years past and have have done well. And our system at the border is completely inadequate to the task of of adjudicating asylum requests in a timely manner. And so then you just turn people away. So we've done that at different points, arguably in violation of our own laws. Although it's been under the auspices, for example, of COVID nineteen. Or you let them in and wait years, even if they might end up not winning their case, but then they're settled here, they're working. It's a very tricky situation. It's not as simple as people who don't regard laws uh, coming in and trying to sneak in. Yeah, I, I think those are the some of the um, misconceptions people have about about immigration that it, it's complicated, and you know, it's not. On the one hand, every every single person approaching the border is someone intent on breaking the law and someone that's going to, you know, be a detriment to our society and all that stuff that sometimes is messaged. On the other hand, it's, it's not all just, you know, the sort of uh humanitarian thing either. It, it, it's a little bit both, right. That we, you know, the bottom line is the system is, is kind of broken. Yeah. Um, really and I, and I think, I, I don't think anybody agrees that it's working well, whether yeah. or not, and, and, you know, good people, right. will disagree on, what should the limits and levels be for how many people we let in the United States and where should the, you know, I think good people have prudential arguments on, on all sides of that. But I think what we've been calling for, for, for years is can we just f- fix an antiquated system Yeah, that is not humane in any way you look at it. Um, and it's not good for the rule of law as well. That's right. I mean, if you care about the rule of law, it's not good for that as well. So what have been the obstacles to fixing the system? It seems like when I think about it, that we've been close so many times to having some reform of the system that respects the rule of law, that doesn't incentivize, you know, more illegal activity, but also is a humane way to deal with both uh, immigrants who are here and those who, you know, open up pathways for those who want to come here that can help our, our country. We've been close a few times, but it seems like both sides of the aisle are incentivized in many ways to continue to run on this issue. Yeah. Right. For various ways. Is that kind of been the most frustrating thing uh, for you? It has been really frustrating and often they're appealing to a, you know, a minority of of their voters, but maybe a very active minority of their voters who are definitely going to vote in a primary election. And I said that happens in both the, on the right and the left, Um, you know, on the right, it's a a fringe of the, on the right that really is against immigration overall. Like they don't want to have functional legal immigration channels. Um, 
they mm-hmm. actually just want to close down. When they say close the border, they mean no one else should come. Um, that's a very fringe position, but there are some people who hold it very strongly. And on the left, it's it's an opposition to any sort of border security, um, not just mm-hmm. to say, yes, we should have you know functional systems for people to come legally, but of course we shouldn't have people just coming in without inspection and not knowing who they are. And there's some opposition on the left to really anything that touches the border. And there has been really good, good faith bipartisan efforts. I mean, I think the the most mm-hmm. recent one, and this is a whole ways back now, was back in 2013, but you had uh, Senator Rubio and Senator McCain at the time, um, mm-hmm. a couple other Republicans, a couple, four Democrats, so it was four Republicans, four Democrats, and it, that bill would have introduced increased border security with a ton of new spending, um, more than $40 billion. It would have also made it much easier to immigrate legally. United States, not without limits, but by increasing, especially in some of the mm-hmm. categories, frankly, that we're seeing now that we desperately needed. Even then we needed it and it's gotten worse in the last decade. And then it would have solved the question of those who are here unlawfully in a way that I think both honors the law, but also is compassionate and recognizes that we we have a societal interest in keeping families together. It basically would have said, you know, if you're here unlawfully, you have to come forward. You'll pay a fine as a consequence for your violation of law as a form of restitution. And then you can get into a line for permanent legal status and meet certain qualifications. And eventually, you know, it was like a 13 plus year path to ever become a U.S. citizen. But it was possible for those who wanted to go through the process and make things right. Um, we think that idea, as opposed to an amnesty that just says, well, you broke the law, it's forgiven and forgotten. Here's your citizenship, which I don't, you know, doesn't, if we're going to respect the law the way that Romans 13 instructs mm-hmm. us to being subject to governing authorities. We can't just have laws that don't mean anything. But it's also not a, a you know, the reality is to pretend that people who've been here, in many cases, 15, 20 years, I mean, if you're going to deport those people, what are you going to do with their 15-year-old child who's a U.S. citizen? You know, what are you going to, we, right. we had some experience with family separation a few years ago. It wasn't very popular with Christians or almost anyone else. That could happen on a much larger scale if we were seriously just going to deport everyone who is unlawfully present. So what's a penalty that is a penalty? It's not amnesty, um, but also allows people, you know, who otherwise have clear records. So we're not talking to people who've committed criminal offenses that are, you know, of course would be disqualifying. Um, but for those who want to earn, make things right and pay restitution for their either overstaying a visa. And that's worth noting half the people who are undocumented, who are here unlawfully came on a valid visa and overstayed. It's not all people who've crossed the border. Um, and what we're seeing now in the last few years is a lot of people who have a, you know, they did cross the border unlawfully, but they didn't then sneak into the country. They went looking for the border patrol to file an asylum request. And the wait time for an asylum case right now, on average, is at least four years. So, mm-hmm. frankly, it's not quite right to describe them as here, you know, like, are they here unlawfully or not? Well, they're in a pending status while they're waiting for an adjudication of their case in an incredibly mm-hmm. backlogged uh, pr- uh, process. That's really good good way to explain it. I mean, I think even of just the simple thing, a lot of folks come here to get educated in our, in our colleges. And we educate them and then they want to stay here and we don't let them stay here, which makes no economic sense in any way that we're some of the sharpest people in the world was saying, we actually don't want you to apply your trade here and build your family here. So I I think to me, that's just really crazy. I mean, I want to, I'm going to speak a a little bit more about immigrants and then pivot and talk about uh, refugees and um, which is, which is another uh, topic that I think is important. But one of the things that's interesting to me about immigrants is for the most part, I've, I've been doing a lot of reading and studying on this. I think number one, one of the fears on you see on both sides of the aisle, well, the, not a fear, but there's, there was kind of an axiom on both sides of the aisle that an increasingly diverse electorate meant that the country would turn blue. Uh, you know, on the left, it was sort of the great 
the left and and some of the Republican Party, it was kind of this um, demography is destiny idea. Yeah. That as for instance, place like Texas, as Texas becomes more diverse, it's going to become more blue. On the right, part, some parts of the right, this was kind of seen as a negative. It called sort of the great replacement theory that that they just want people to immigrants to flood our streets and they're just going to vote with the left and they're going to change us forever. Well, that, it turns out none of that's true. That hasn't happened. You know, you see the way that, for instance, Hispanic vote Hispanic voters are not monolithic. And, you know, some of the numbers you're saying they're, they're increasingly voting uh, conservative and obviously voting considerations is not the main consideration when you're thinking about how to shape immigration policy. But some of the worst fears have just not been realized. And the more you look into it, you realize, for instance, I've looked at Brad Wilcox's work at University of Virginia has found that immigrant families are more stable in many ways than American families. For instance, 72% of immigrant families are with their first spouse and raising Mm -hmm. their kids versus like say 60% with the American public. In terms of religious fervor, Immigrants have a higher religious for whether they're Catholic or um, conservative evangelicals. And I've even heard people like Tim Keller say that one of the hopes that he has for the American church is the way that the immigrant church is renewing our faith, that they're robustly orthodox in their faith over and against maybe Americans who might be tempted to to compromise in one way or the other. Uh, They seem to be generally more pro-life, pro-family. So all that to say, Matt, Matt, I just would love, there are obviously complexities with immigration, but immigrant families generally are um, the type of people we would want in our communities and our neighborhoods. Yeah. Yeah. You know, my uh, friends, Eric Costanzo and Daniel Yang, and I did a book not long ago. And one of the central theses of that book is, as we look at the church in the United States, which, you know, has been responsible for a lot of good, but also is has its issues. And we're most, most of us mm-hmm. think a few of those right now. One of the things that we think God is doing is revitalizing the church through immigration and through immigrant believers who, who aren't perfect either, don't have the perfect way to do church, but bring a lot of vibrancy of faith. Some of them having been persecuted for their faith. When you look at the political dynamics, again, it's not, you know, our organization is nonpartisan. We're not here to help Republicans or Democrats, but it, the idea that immigrants are necessarily going to be Democratic voters has not proven true. And sometimes it does become a little bit this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, those people might vote for the party we don't like, so we should be mean to them. And then they vote for you less because you're saying terrible things about them or about their parents right. or whatever. Um, I think, you know, there in Texas, you've got a good example. George W. Bush was um, very conservative, obviously, but very mm-hmm. pro-immigrant really throughout his career in a lot of different ways mm-hmm. as governor as, of Texas and then as, um, as president. And he won a higher share of the Hispanic vote than any Republican has won since Mm -hmm. and for many years before that um, he won the majority if i'm not mistaken as governor in texas and i think that's actually that legacy is a part of why hispanics in texas in particular tend to be more aligned with the republican party than let's say hispanics in Mm -hmm. california where when george w bush was governor and doing a lot of pro-immigrant things you had a governor in california in the mid-90s who was on kind of an anti-immigrant track and that for generations turned people against Mm -hmm. the republican party and again not my job to help Republicans or Democrats. Um, you know, it is to say, how do we think biblically about these issues? But for those for whom, you know, they see other policy issues informed by their biblical beliefs, whether that's, you know, caring for unborn lives or other issues that may align with one party or the other, I think it's a mistake to write off immigrants and say, well, those people are going to be on the other side. And the evidence just doesn't bear that out. I mean, these are Latin America isn't all immigrants, of course, but if you look at Latin America in particular, a lot of people coming from societies very influenced by 
uh, Catholicism in particular, historically, where abortion mm-hmm. is is illegal in, in most of those places. A lot of that, you know, people bring their values with them. Uh, for better or worse, assimilation and integration also does happen. And sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes it's not a good thing. You know, some of those stats on uh, family dynamics that you mentioned, which are absolutely true, they're not always holding up in the third or fourth generation. And that might mm-hmm. say something about American society that, um, you know, isn't necessarily a positive value. But immigrants keep bringing that value for, as they come in each new generation. And that's, frankly, that's been part of the American story in some really positive ways. Most of us, you know, can go track the point where our first ancestors came to this country if we're not completely Native American. Um, and that is part of what has built the United States to be the strong country that we are, that we know how to, to integrate people in, bringing some of their values with them, and, and but also becoming a part of this larger whole. I think we can say we have nothing to fear from a from a sensible, balanced, you know, immigration policy. I, w- I want to shift a little bit to uh, the issue of um, refugee care and just just kind of maybe get some status updates on on some of those things. You know, you obviously have had uh, really to me, and, and you could correct me if I'm wrong. There might be other other places. Uh, where there's been uh, turmoil, but in the last decade, you have you've had uh, a lot of refugees coming in from Syria with the mm-hmm. um, civil war, ongoing civil war there. But then, obviously, in recent days, uh, with the fall of uh, Afghanistan and um, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, you know, uh, an increased opportunity for Americans to to welcome some of those refugees in. And one of the things that's heartening in some ways is on the ground when I talk to Christians, they're really ready to to care for folks who've come from these really um they're fleeing terror. These are people yeah. that don't want to be driven out of their homes but have been against their will, whether it's Afghanistan or Ukraine. And so maybe talk about where we are with that. I know the president promised to to bring in a large number of them. Seems like the um processing has taken longer than we anticipated. So maybe maybe kind of talk about where where we're at with that. Yeah. So I mean the Current status, uh, well, we're just about at one year from the fall of Kabul. And with that, in the days and weeks that followed, we saw about 70 to 80,000 Afghans come to the United States. They went not immediately to the United States, but to third countries, and they were vetted. And then once they cleared that, they were brought to the U.S., held on military bases for vaccines and some health processing and other things. And then they were settled all across the United States. So in World Relief, where I work, um, we're the humanitarian arm of, of the National Association of Evangelicals. So we're you know coming at this from a Christian perspective. Um, we've been involved in, in welcoming several thousand of those Afghans and connecting them um, to local communities in partnership with volunteers from local churches. So that's been, you know, it's not an easy process. Frankly, we had resettled nationally a very low number of refugees for the last several years. So it was from kind of almost zero to a large number very quickly. Um, but um, we have, as you've said, seen just incredible support from local churches, from communities as a whole. I mean, the, if you look at polling on this, the American population overall was very eager to welcome and stand with Afghans. And that's been sustained with the Ukrainians as well. Um, Ukrainians, it's been a little bit complicated because it took a little while for there to be a process for Ukrainians, which I should say isn't unusual. I mean, when Syrians began fleeing, it took four to five years before we started to see them as refugees resettled to the United States. There was an effort to get Ukrainians here more quickly, which we're pleased with. Some came on tourist visas that they happen to already have. And because Ukraine is a fairly, you know, well-off or what's a fairly well-off European country, more people had access to tourist visas where they could just get on an airplane and perhaps seek asylum once they arrived. We saw others go through Mexico, actually, about actually more than 10,000 people 
got on planes to Mexico, which didn't have a tour a visa requirement for Ukrainians, the way that the United States does. Um, and then they sought asylum at the border and they, some exceptions were made to the COVID, COVID rules. So they were able to uh, seek parole and come to the United States at the border. And then just in the last month or two, we've seen a buildup of this, another process to bring Ukrainians to the United States. They're not technically coming as refugees. And that's important because unlike a refugee who gets here and can apply for the green card a year later and citizenship four years after that, the Ukrainians, as well as most of the Afghans are under something called parole, which basically means they have a, you know, they have a work authorization card that expires in two years. And they hope that someone will, if it's not safe for them to go back to their country, which Afghanistan seems awfully unlikely, even Ukraine, we'd hope it will be better, you know, in two years, but it might take longer than that. Um, the federal government of the United States would have to renew that status. And they don't necessarily have the option to pursue permanent legal status, which many would like to stay in the U.S. and rebuild a life here. But um, what we've been so encouraged by is the community's response. I mean, churches um, in particular, which is our, our focus at World Relief, have been really eager to welcome people. And we hope that that will extend to people who we may have forgotten about. You know, we've had Congolese refugees who've been waiting in lines that literally extend decades for a settlement. And we are seeing some of those uh, individuals come now. Um, but the numbers are still well below the levels of like 2015, 2016. And we hope that the U.S. government will continue to um, welcome both the refugees fleeing the situations that are in the news, but also those that were haven't made it into our news or were in the news 20 years ago, but people have just been waiting in a refugee camp situation. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad you've mentioned that. And one of the things that's encouraging is uh, World Relief has also partnered with the Southern Baptist North American Mission Board and really helping to connect churches to refugees. And I think one of the things that a lot of folks don't understand that don't understand how the refugee system works and, and what World Relief does to help assimilate immigrants is that you actually partner with churches to help immigrants get assimilated into their communities. And what a great opportunity for churches to say, you know, we want to do everything we can to help build their new lives here. You know, I think most of us take for granted how good we have it, that imagine having to uproot your entire life and move to another country with another language. You don't know anybody. So what a great opportunity that is. So maybe share practically if people are listening, if a pastor or church leaders listen, say, hey, you know, our people have a heart for this. What can we do to help? How can we help come around refugees from these countries and help assimilate them? Yeah. You know, that's really been our model since we started our refugee program at World Relief back in the late 70s. And that was in response to situation not that different than the Afghan situation where allies of the United States from the Vietnam War were coming in very large numbers. And it was actually a missionary couple uh, who had served in Vietnam for many years, uh, was back stateside and started knocking on every door possible to say, how do we you know, help welcome these families? And they would call up local churches that had been you know, financial supporters of theirs as missionaries and say, hey, this family's arriving at the airport. Um, we, we've, you know, the model has changed a little bit over the years, but it's still essentially the same idea. We call it a good neighbor team. We've got a team from a local church that will basically commit to a particular family or sometimes individuals, um, usually a family. They'll be involved even before they arrive. Usually we get a little bit of notice that a family, you know, they're, they'll be arriving on this date. So we can work with the team from the church, that good neighbor team to set up an apartment to make sure it's furnished. So that's something, you know, people from a church can be a part of going in, you know, whether use stuff or finding new stuff to help furnish an apartment uh, and then picking them up at the airport. And then we ask that a good neighbor team to make at least a six month commitment. Our not so secret agenda is we'd love for this to be a lifelong relationship and friendship that goes on beyond that. But um, at least for six months, basically the primary role of that team from a church is to be friends with this family, which as we've surveyed people over the years, you know, what did you need when you first arrived? Friendship has very regularly come up number one. 
there's other things, transportation or, you know, language learning help or that sort of thing. But friendship, it was, if you, any of us think about it, if we were dropped in another country, you know, as, as grateful as we might be to be in a safe place, um, but the culture is very different. The language is usually different. Sometimes the religion is different with the majority of people. Uh, and there's an incredible opportunity there for the church to be faithful to that command to love our neighbors. Sometimes there's, again, some of these folks are people who were persecuted for their Christian faith, and they've had a lot to teach just about following Jesus. Others are not Christians, and they might encounter the gospel as we are in friendship with them. And and as they ask those questions of, you know, why do you do this? We get to, as First Peter says, to be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the hope that's within you. Um, so we think it's a really great model. You know, church, we're not in every community, but World Relief is in a bunch of communities around the United States. And we're, where we're not, there are other resettlement agencies that are working with the U.S. government. Again, the government makes a decision who comes in. These are all people who come in vetted by the government with legal status um, of some sort. And then we're there to meet them at the airport and pick them up and help them get acclimated and integrated into a new community. Mm, that's really good. Well, I, I really want to encourage folks to check out the work of World Relief and uh, check out uh, Matt's new book. It's called uh, Inalienable, How Marginalized Kingdom Voices Can Help Save the American Church. We'll have a link to it in our show notes. Great work. And really follow everybody, Matt, uh, Matthew Sorens online, on Twitter, on, you know, we'll have links to all, all of your work and uh, really, really great work helping us understand the complexities of this issue and uh, thankful for you and uh, glad to have you on here on the Way Home Podcast. Yeah, great to be back, Daniel. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this edition of The Way Home Podcast with Daniel Darling. For more information, you can visit danieldarling.com. If you do like this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast catcher. We also encourage you to rate and review so others can know about the podcast. You can follow me at at Dan Darling on Twitter or go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Daniel M. Darling. Thank you for listening again to The Way Home Podcast. Podcast.